Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the markets and helps you make smart choices with your investments. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. Welcome to the latest podcast, everyone. Uh, Craig Stentz is joining me today, and he's the a founder of Harbour Asset Management and head of Harbour's equities team. Furthermore, he provides equity research and ratings on the utility sector, which has been uh, an important one for lots of uh, investors in New Zealand. And Harbour's one of the active fund managers chosen by ASB to manage Australian equities in our portfolio series of investments. It's great to have you on the podcast, Craig. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the local share market and how you think the economy and uh, businesses are tracking. So welcome to the call. Hi, Chris, and uh, it's great to be online and to share our thoughts about where we see the world at the moment. Yeah, I'm sad that we're still not at the point where we can get back into the studio. I'm working from home. And funnily enough, today was the day that the next door neighbours decided to start renovating their house. So I've asked them if they could just cut the sanders and the buzz saws down for half an hour while we record this. But hopefully over the next week or two, we'll be back in the office. What are you and the Harbour team doing in terms of working from home back in the office these days? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, we, we've got a couple of offices where most of the people are based in Wellington. Pretty much everyone's been back at work since, you know, after Christmas. Clearly, there's been a few people that have come and gone as they've uh, succumbed to the virus, I guess. But yeah, everyone enjoys being back in the office and, and some people work from home occasionally, which I, I think works in with people's lifestyles and helps them be a bit more productive and work on certain projects from time to time. So it's um, I think that flexibility is here to stay in, in the corporate workforce. Yeah, it's certainly nice to uh, avoid the morning traffic jams here in Auckland. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I'm looking forward to a bit more networking. And uh, particularly if the next neighbour's renovations go on for a few months like they inevitably do, maybe that'll be my catalyst to put up with a bit of driving and to get back to work. Hey, and um, you've been at uh, you've been at Harbour right uh, since the beginning, right? And um, so, tell us a little bit about your role at Harbour and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, no, it's no, it's a great question. I, I've been here since uh, two thousand and ten. Um, it seems like yesterday we started the business up. Um, the, the core team of the equity team were, were part of a global company called Alliance Bernstein in the day, and they decided, as big corporates do, they decided to shut the New Zealand business down, and and so we. We still wanted to do what we were doing, so we managed to set up the business and, and get some support from uh, another investor that helped us help get us going. And and now we've been going for uh, 12 strong years, and we, we manage about $7.5 billion across uh, different asset classes. And I guess my role was, and principally as we started the business out, was as an equity house managing money for you know clients and institutions like ASB and uh, and so forth. And it's it's clearly evolved um, since then, the business has grown from strength to strength, and now we number um, some 30, 32 people and <laughs> constantly growing, it seems. And I guess it's one of the conversations we're having today about is, you know, difficulty in finding people and uh, strength of labour market, inflation and et cetera. So some of those, you know, clear issues of we're facing on a day-to-day basis, um, I guess, are very familiar topics for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, discussing what some of the businesses you deal with and how Harbour's tackling some of those challenges. One of the things I really enjoy um, about Harbour is the uh, is the research notes that you publish on your website. I enjoy reading them. They're really insightful and uh, I encourage uh, listeners to have a look. And I want to start with a note that you recently published called Inflation, Rates and Conflict 
the end of free money and globalization. That's a punchy title. And uh, it sums up an awful lot of the issues that investors are, are grappling with on top of the, uh, the pandemic or maybe intertwined with the pandemic. So if it works for you, let's chat about some of the points you've been making uh, before we get into um, how businesses went over and the share market went over the first quarter. How does, how does that sound? Sounds great, Chris. Great, great flow. Cool. Well, shall we start with um, in inflation? And um, one of the things that someone said, can I ask you, is are we in stagflation, um, which is a scary word for any economist to think about. Um, so let's keep it a bit simpler than that and say, how has your thinking about inflation evolved over the past year or so? Yeah, that's. Um, I, I think this, this, this topic has certainly uh, evolved materially over the last year or so. If we, if we re- rewind the clock, uh, to about this time last year, uh, there was this whole buzzword around transitory. It was a bit like the word unprecedented at the time <laughs> it came into vogue and then kind of disappeared again now because this, this transitory uh, topic, I guess, has to some extent become a little bit more embedded. And that's clearly something the central banks around the world are uh, really worrying about now. Clearly, you know, a couple of years ago, it was COVID-related issues, uh, supply chain disruptions that were shocking the world, I guess, from that perspective. But now we've had the, the conflict in Ukraine, uh, which has created or elongated some of those supply channel disruptions. Um, but, but also, I guess, as we reopen up around the world, uh, there's certain tensions around the, you know, people's appetite for consumption, um, getting back into the labour force, the sh- tightness of labour markets around the world. And I guess the, the lifting of inflation expectations is the key thing that central banks are probably grappling with at the moment and how they can get on top of that. So certainly this topic has, has evolved. Um, in terms of stagflation, I think that, you know, it's, I don't think it's a base case for, for many people, but it's certainly a, an area that we need to be very mindful about because that conversation is rapidly developing as well as, as the data potentially comes out a bit softer and inflation uh, prints become quite elevated, um, as you've talked about many times yourself before, Chris. Um, that these these numbers are quite eye-watering, really. Oh yeah, the inflation pressures are so strong, and and the dynamics keep changing, don't they? Um, one of the things which has helped with the labour market here up until the pandemic was um, was migration and uh, and getting people into plug skill shortages. And um, we've learned heaps over the past couple of years of how important short-term visitors are to industries, um, and including um, fruit picking. Uh, all the way through to hospitality. And and it's interesting now that borders are starting to open rather than thinking this will be a solution to the labour market, the conversation shifted to, well, maybe this will be an even more pressure if, if Kiwis start travelling. So it um, comes back to that word about unprecedented times or certainly very challenging and hard to predict times. In the mix, are there pressures that you think can ease over the coming months? And uh, and what are the aspects that you think are looking more problematic, both in terms of your own thoughts and things that businesses are perhaps saying to you that they're worried about some of these uh, capacity and inflation pressures that, that businesses are dealing with? Yeah, um, I think some of these, you know, at a headline level, some of these pressures will ease from a statistical perspective in, in terms of the headline numbers. And I mean, if you think point to the US, we've seen used car sales. Who would have thought you can get a more for your used car than just about what you paid for it? Uh, and then we've seen things like rents, et cetera, go through the roof. Uh, and they've been a large contributor to, the, I guess, to the underlying numbers of of the CPI. 
in clearly the goods goods demand that we, um, I guess, um, got, got crazy about post-lockdowns that everyone was going out, oh, whoa, we can buy all this stuff now. Uh, we've got this pent-up savings that we just want to go buy another TV or um, some other widget to have around the house. Um, so I guess that sort of demand side for, for goods is, is probably going to naturally wane a bit because you don't need that many TVs in your house. Uh, but there's still be pressures that are, are flowing through. I mean, commodity prices more broadly, uh, energy costs, um, all this stuff is going to flow through to, to finished goods and uh, to a lesser extent services. And so, so those impacts aren't going away anytime soon. If anything, they're going to be a little bit more elongated. And, and we're still seeing supply shortages across, you know, technology space, semiconductors, etc. cetera. Uh, and the transport and supply channels don't have seem to have let up. Um, if anything, if, if readers have been or listeners have been reading the news about, you know, in Shanghai and China and, and their uh, determination to, to have a zero case policy in their, their local uh, economies, you know, in terms of Shanghai, we're seeing ships around, normally around 100 ships off, off the port of Shanghai, and that's now led to 300 or so. Um, so you've still got these disruptions that are, that are I guess, permeating out there in, in, in the market. As you touched on, Chris, you know, labour is a big issue here locally in New Zealand, and it's a thing that corporates are going to really uh, battle with, and I think they're starting to battle with now. I mean, we, we face in our own business trying to find staff. It's a very tight labour market. And with limited migration, and if anything, it's, it's migration going the other way, the brain drain that you talked about, uh, as young people might want to travel overseas or with better opportunities in other markets for, for people to um, build wealth and extend themselves. I don't think that issue here locally is going away at all. Maybe that means that companies have to think about, you know, sort of process improvements or productivity gains. Maybe that's investing in technology, but that doesn't happen overnight. You still need to plan for that, and it does take time. But it might ease the pressures over time, marginally. Yeah, when we when we look at the recent business opinion surveys, there's just so uh, so many cost pressures coming through for businesses here in New Zealand, and just massive numbers of businesses that want to put up prices. And that's behind um, ASB's forecast for the Consumer Price Index to get over 7%. What are the key businesses in New Zealand that you're looking at um, and and talk with, thinking about the outlook and their ability to both absorb or pass on these these price pressures? Do you think that very high level of um, businesses that are saying we're going to put up prices will be actually able to do it. Yeah, I, I think to some extent you know, New Zealand corporates will give it a go and see what happens and, and see if they can pass on those those costs where, where possible. Um, and clearly we are very much, you know, if you think about manufacturing or goods businesses, we, we very much are the whims of what's happening globally with, as we've talked about before, supply channels and some of those costs is passed on anyway. You have no choice, right? Uh, and it's probably a little bit reason part of the reason why we're a little bit cautious about the consumer here in New Zealand and, and probably in Australia, but that's probably six months away. You have to worry about that. It seems to be a little bit out of cycle with New Zealand, but you know, the ability for some of those companies to pass on on that, well, they might try. Uh, whether it sticks or not, it's another, another story. Um, but, but if you think about other companies which have large labour components, um, you know, demands for wages is obviously lifting, lifting as well. And what, what Capacity do they have to pass on, on on the labour costs? Um, in some cases, might be quite challenged. Yeah, when we look at the mix uh, and and particularly households' um, ability to deal with their cost pressures, it's probably the discretionary spending area that we worry about the most. 
the labour market looks pretty strong in terms of the total level of employment, uh, but people's budgets are definitely getting um, squeezed pretty hard. And things like higher fuel costs are just a are just a tax on households. So it's the um, it's some of those discretionary things that we've been buying, um, and those big ticket items that, like you say, that we perhaps don't need to buy every year, but we've certainly bought a new barbecue or what have you or a TV with the money that we've saved during lockdown. So that that's an area where we're carefully looking at when we think about the outlook for the year ahead. So um, the other question we get with this um, uh, inflationary environment, and, but also these, these growth threats is um, central banks and their uh, responses. And as you mentioned in your, um, your note, there's been a real pivot uh, and as you say, a, a regime change really from a period that goes back to the global financial crisis where central banks have had our backs, if you like, and done what it takes to support growth and essentially kept rates low. And now it feels like we're at the start of the first decent tightening cycle for many, many years. Have you been surprised at the swiftness of the change that we're seeing for central banks? And one of the swift ones was uh, this week with the RBA that's definitely changed strategy, but um, reserve banks probably gone from being a what felt like an outlier and a quick changer last year to more of a, a, a trailblazer. So what's your thoughts on, on the pace of the change that we've seen? Yeah, it's been, uh, as I think we described in the notes, it's been uh, warp speed, the, the pivot or change from central banks globally, and they're reacting to the data prints that are coming out on inflation. So they need to get on top of this. Um, I found a good quote from uh, the former chair, uh, Fed chair, Ben Bernanke, um, from 2011, it, actually, it was, uh, and it's probably quite relevant today as well. And it went something like this: uh, the Fed can't create more oil. We don't control the growth rates of emerging market economies. What we can do is basically try to keep higher gas prices from passing into other prices and wages throughout the economy, and creating a broader inflation, which would be much more difficult to extinguish. So I think that quote's dead right, even though it's uh, 11 years old. What central banks don't want to see is this inflation prints getting embedded into inflation expectations and other transmission mechanisms like wages. And, and so what we're seeing in this policy response from central banks is moving from extremely uh, stimulatory emergency settings uh, to something more neutral. And depending on the reaction of the inflation numbers, uh, they might have to go into a, a tightening bias. Um, so I think we kind of need to remind ourselves that we have been at these ultra-low interest rate levels, and central banks are just moving back to perhaps a more neutral stance. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting to listen to a quote from, from over 10 years ago and think, yep, that still sums it up, though. And and these are still historically low interest rates that we're dealing with. But um, having been able to access a 2% uh, mortgage, a uh, a 5% mortgage seems very, very expensive. But for um, now, being in my 50s, uh, most of my borrowing life, I'd, I'd be very, very happy with a 5% mortgage, particularly having paid a 10% mortgage at one stage. And there's probably some listeners out there that have said, you know, nothing, son, I've paid a 20% mortgage. But um, we still are in a low interest rate environment, it feels, but nowhere near as low as what we've come through. And that brings me to a question about local interest rates. And when you look at market pricing and where interest rates are that borrowers face and, and that businesses Face. For um, rates and equities, do you think equity prices have adjusted to this big movement in, in bond yields uh, and the underlying assumptions about where central banks are taking uh, interest rates? Um, I mean, certainly the, the interest rate market has moved and the interest rate curves further out. 
have moved materially. And we have seen this reaction function, I guess, from you know banks like yourselves that are also lifting mortgage rates, longer-term mortgage rates, etc. So still what we need to see is that, I guess, the reserve banks of the local economies or central banks move the official cash rates and deliver, I guess, on these the, the embedded tightenings that are priced into the market. And, and in some ways, the, the markets are actually probably in, embedding a, a probably too much tightening in further dated interest rate settings. But I guess that's the tug of war that's going on between uh, growth and inflation in central banks. And I think from an equity market perspective, we had this clearly this large drawdown in the first quarter across most markets, actually. And, and that was, uh, I guess, investors readjusting to these higher interest rates and how that affects the valuation of perhaps you know, more longer dated companies, which might the profitability of those businesses is a bit, bit further out. And you can see that, I guess, with the, the performance of you know, those more sensitive markets to interest rates like the NASDAQ in the US, which had obviously a reasonable drawdown in the first quarter. So, so I think there has been a, a reaction to the, the repricing of interest rates. I guess the key unknown, and we've seen it again this week, is the interest rate curves continue to sell off and, and go higher as they react to, I guess, more more comments from the Fed around, uh, you know, where this quantitative easing uh, concept, and now we're reversing that and going into quantitative tightening. And what does that mean for, I guess, liquidity and financial conditions in the US more broadly? So I think we've seen a, a big adjustment in terms of the interest rates and effect on equities. But if we see a further elevation or increase in interest rates, it still makes the equity market a little bit wary about the pricing of some of those companies. Yeah, and, and from uh, many years in uh, working in the dealing room, when um, interest rates get a bit of momentum in one direction, sometimes it can carry on for quite a while, but not necessarily give you a good guide about where things will settle. And uh, you know, things like a 10-year government bond has come uh, so far in a short space of time, but are starting to get a little bit ahead, in my view, of where, where they should be if um, if inflation in the long term isn't a big problem and, and central banks like the Reserve Bank of New Zealand uh, can finish their tightening cycles with official cash rates below 3%, for example. But let's turn to corporate New Zealand. Um, and uh, you've highlighted what you think about the interest rate and inflation environment. And so I'm interested as a, you're an active fund manager. So and out there trying to choose businesses that you think will do well. So what businesses in, in New Zealand and within your portfolios do you think are positioned well for this interest rate and inflation environment? And uh, are there any area, sectors or uh, that, that you're worried about at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So we can invest across New Zealand and Australia. And um, we're principally a, a growth manager, so looking for companies that can grow their earnings through various parts of the cycle. And some of them, some of the companies we're looking at, I guess, uh, uh, to some extent, are, are not immune, but not necessarily affected by what's happening in the economic cycle as they have the great product or um, business that they can grow through through all markets. But I think in New Zealand, there's you know we're, we're looking for companies that can have pricing power and they can continue to grow their revenue and, and maintain margins against this, the face of other increasing costs such as staff or supply channels, etc., uh, or just natural goods pricing that they might have as part of their process. But I think some of the companies that, that we invest in, and examples here are Main Freight, EBOS, and to a lesser extent, Fisher & Paco Healthcare. They are global businesses that are growing their business in various markets. And indications from some of these companies is that they can manage to pass on the cost or that the cost increases is relatively small relative to their, their overall margin or sales. So they've got the ability to pass that on. 
At the other end of the spectrum, we've got companies that are highly exposed to the consumer, uh, have high labour content, they might have very high transport or freight costs. And some of the areas we think about here is, you know, the retailers, aged care sector, which has a high labour content, delivering care services into, into people. And they're also struggling with the, the labour shortage as well, because many of these people, you know, can immigrate or have immigrated from, from other parts of the world. We we'll get to see an impact of these influences on the company profitability to a greater extent, but I think some of that is still ahead of us and from, a, from an earnings perspective for some of these companies. And how about some of the businesses that um, potentially can benefit from borders reopening and people travelling more? Um, I'm thinking of the likes of Air New Zealand here or, or Qantas across the Tasman, the airports, uh, which have had such a hard few years. Is it possible to um, start uh, thinking about a better outlook for those businesses or do you think there's still a lot of uncertainty for them? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> how, how many flights you booked so far? <laughs> <laughs> I booked them. I booked them on very short term basis yeah. because of the uh, the uncertainty. And um, one of the funny things, I've always wanted to do the Milford Track, and I've never managed to get a slot. But I did it this year, so that was a COVID success for me. Right. But um, it was up in the air right until the last minute, and. Um, it was amazingly cheap compared to, or, well, to travel and book a hotel compared to earlier trips down to uh, that beautiful part of New Zealand. So it's very hard to know um, if the clouds have cleared, in, in my view. Is that how you feel? Yeah, I, I guess at a high level we can we can segment the market and, and people have done this in the last two years into, I guess, the COVID losers and the COVID beneficiaries. We are coming out of this COVID, I guess, loser phase as as the variants decrease in um, the impact and we can potentially open up New Zealand to the rest of the world. So anything that's exposed, as you touched on, to travel, tourism, uh, or open borders has been clearly hit in New Zealand Qantas. But there's also companies like Tourism Holdings here in New Zealand, the, the campervan company, Circo, which provides travel software effectively for travel agents and, and uh, booking.com, et cetera. Um, so if travel's down, these guys don't necessarily benefit from a, a user's perspective. Uh, another company we own in the portfolio called Ramsey Healthcare, which is probably one of the largest private healthcare companies in, in it's Australian business, but in Australia and, and France and Europe. And they've been limited around the um, ability to do elective surgeries because their facilities have been taken up or basically commandeered by the governments for other healthcare services. Obviously, Sky City here in New Zealand, in Australia as well as other examples of companies have been hit uh, from an earnings perspective because their businesses are being disrupted. You clearly think they, they should benefit as the world reopens, but as we just talked about briefly, Chris, there's, there's still a lot of unknowns about people's appetite to travel. Are you going to book a flight for your family to go to Europe for six weeks and and the, the hassles that might come with that around testing and insurance and everything else that goes with it? So it's not going to be an easy journey, I don't think. It might ease up over time as people get a bit more comfortable with it. But I think sort of long haul travel might be another 12 months before that really gets off the ground. Uh, you might might go to Fiji or Australia for a holiday, but um, I think that, that long haul stuff is probably a bit more tricky. Yeah, I agree. My father lives in America and has lived there for over 30 years. Although travel's possible, the bit that concerns both of us is, are we going to get sick from it? And if we do, who's where are we going to get looked after and who's going to, who's going to pay for that? Um, uh, particularly uh, going to America, it's not a, a cheap place to uh, to need hospital care, that's for sure. And, and I think those uncertainties will impact people's uh, appetites. 
and I think some of these this reopening trade that everyone's talking about, some of these companies might benefit. It's not necessarily lost on some of the share prices, and clearly in the likes of New Zealand, we've had a large capital raising uh, that has to be digested by the market, and that's basically just get the get the company back on an even keel so they can actually open the doors and um, and run the business without needing government support. And the likes of Auckland Airport, it's similarly, it's um, you know that share price pre-COVID was sort of eight dollars fifty. It went down to four dollars sixty when they raised a lot of money. And now we're back at close to $8 again. So there is a lot of, I guess, embedded expectations, some of these companies, that the earnings are going to rebound and and life will be back to normal. But, you know, there's still a lot of, lot of uncertainty out there that we have to, to contend with. It was very weird to go out to the airport for my trip that I mentioned. Uh, you know, it used to be a pretty much a weekly thing to be out at the airport and dealing with traffic and uh, queues and all that sort of stuff. And it was almost surreal to go out there and fly after such a long time of, of, of not doing too much travel. And, and that's just domestically. The international terminal looks even stranger, but uh, hopefully some of that pricing uh, in, in the share price uh, proves to be correct and, um, and things do pick up. Changing uh, subject a little bit, we've already built up a bunch of uh, uncertainties and things for people to worry about, and then we've uh, got the horrible situation in, in Ukraine to add to the mix, and a lot of investors have been asking us about the impact of the conflict uh, in Ukraine on, on New Zealand and, and on markets. And my first answer as an economist is New Zealand doesn't do a lot of trade with Russia or Ukraine, but uh, direct trade's only one of the uh, channels we've got what it means for confidence, what it means for commodities that we're interested in buying elsewhere. And clearly, the two countries are uh, are impacting commodity prices and impacting confidence in financial markets. Do you ponder the idea that this uh, war could mean that central banks take a more gradual approach to uh, interest rate settings? Or, or are you in the, in the camp that they're just very much focused on on inflation at the moment? And, um, and this is just some background stuff that they have to deal with. Yeah, I think... Um, straight up, I don't think that they necessarily are going to change their approach, the central banks, uh, because of the Ukraine. I think they've acknowledged that in their last meeting when they said that you know the conflict has taken a chunk off growth with the disruptions, but they are primarily focused on on inflation and taming the inflation expectations. So I think they're still going to forge ahead with interest rate increases. And I guess many of the cases you've seen in the, in the last probably 100 years, um, conflicts happen and then they cause an issue, I guess, in terms of market volatility and risk aversion. And, and we've seen it again this time around. Um, and there's a bounce in expectations or, or bounce in risk assets. And we've seen that, I guess, bounce back in equity markets as well. As horrible as the conflict is for the humanitarian aspect of it, sometimes just with time, it becomes less of a topic that people need to worry about or focus on. It's not the front page of the newspaper every day. Yeah, I think one of the things that I uh, remind myself of time and time again is that uh, investment markets never wait for all the clouds to clear before they um, start to find direction. And that certainly felt like what was happening in March. It was actually a reasonable market a month for uh, equity markets in particular, even though the, the front page of the newspaper um, looked uh, as bad as ever when it came to news coming out of the, out of the Ukraine. It's just a tough thing that we're having to watch and I hope things um, improve over the coming months. 
Talking about sort of global events and uh, within your report, the final point about globalization, you uh, point out the move towards globalization that really started with the fall of the Berlin Wall is coming to an end. Now, what do you think some of the key events that are signaling this um, deglobalization, I guess we could call it, or the fact that the peak period of cooperation is perhaps say, uh, several years behind us? I think if we rewind a couple of years to perhaps Trump antagonizing in China in terms of tariffs and other things, I mean, that, that might have been the start of it more broadly. Um, and now with the Russian-Ukraine crisis has clearly increased the geopolitical tensions around the world. And then there's a lot of countries who happen to choose, take sides effectively and show a coordinated effort in some, some regards. And where we're not so certain perhaps is what China's approach is going to be. Clearly, they can see, you know, they've got amb- potential ambitions for what they see Taiwan as where it belongs. Um, but I think they're probably being surprised by the, the reaction by the West largely in, in terms of sanctions and, and other controls that they're taking. Um, so that might be hopefully off the table for now. But I think countries have to think about a lot of things now, how they engage with the rest of the world, how they trade, who they want to trade with. Obviously, security supply of energy is a massive thing, particularly in Europe. And we've seen a massive push by you know, the Germany, the Frances of the world to look to in-source energy generation. There's lots of renewable projects being talked about. And this is great from, a, I guess, a decarbonisation perspective as well. This might accelerate us getting to some of these targets that we've set uh, around the world. And hopefully it does. Um, there's other, other issues we have to think about. You know, where are foreign currencies held? Um, can they get confiscated by a central bank um, if, there's, if there's issues there? And I, I think more broadly, if we think about or locally, it's going to change the way companies operate as well. If these supply channels are likely to stay disruptive for a period of time, uh, does that require alternative sourcing of products? Do we think about where we um, take take or get stuff manufactured and where, where we take it from? Do we have a more diverse base of where we get stuff from? And maybe you have to hold larger inventory so you've got stuff on hand just in case something flares up. So I don't think we can necessarily rely on the globalisation theme as a, a key driver of deflation that we've seen in the last probably 20, 30 years. I think that, that might be largely gone now. It's a watch and wait, I think, but certainly these issues can pass over time. But I think it's the, perhaps the world order has changed a little bit. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, um, for listeners that are interested in this, there's some great implications that you cover in terms of inflation and supply chains for us here in New Zealand. And one of the positives, we've talked about a few negative things, is uh, New Zealand is seen as a reliable place for food production and with good connections to the rest of the world. And and probably case in point is dairy prices, which have been very positive through this uh, period. And and so volumes of dairy exports have have held up well. Well, so hopefully there's some benefits in it for uh, for New Zealand as well. At that point, shall we turn to the local share market uh, and uh, well, we can, uh, Australasia, I guess, as the market uh, and the performance over the first quarter? It's been a been a tough start here in New Zealand, uh, but um, a bit more positive over uh, in Australia. What are some of the highs and lows when you think about how Australasian markets have gone over Q1, Craig? Yeah, that's a great question, and for. There has been a big divergence, I guess, for the performance of both equity markets in the, in the last quarter. And, and perhaps if we rewind the clock a little bit, it's probably been more than probably about a year or so that we've seen this divergence in, in performance of New Zealand versus Australia. And to characterise New Zealand, we have a the New Zealand equity market is a relatively defensive market with around about 50% of the companies in the market 
sort of utility type companies or um, telcos, etc., which are influenced from a valuation sense by what's happening in the bond markets. And we've seen this large sell-off that we've talked about in 10-year rates that people use for a valuation sense. That's probably largely the reason behind New Zealand underperforming the last 12 months. Conversely, if we think about Australia, the, the lucky country uh, that never does recessions, uh, they, they have obviously a large... Uh, hard commodity mix that they export around the world and into China and Asia, etc. And there's been a latent strong demand for commodities. And with the disruption was experienced in, in Russia, Ukraine, uh, the pricing of those commodities has gone, you know, skyrocketed up. And clearly, the, Australia is a beneficiary from in terms of trade and uh, revenue and tax take, etc. And there's obviously lots of other companies which hang off the resource sector more broadly, and that's obviously from a profitability perspective is great for those businesses. So I think Australia is a, probably in a better position than we are at the moment. Um, relatively strong employment like ourselves. Uh, the central bank is probably a little bit behind where our central bank is, albeit that's pivoted in the last day or so. It's amazing what happens when they take away our word, uh, the word patient in their, in their language, um, and it seems the market is getting ready for them to increase interest rates as well, um, which is probably likely the sensible thing to come. Yeah, I think every trader had their finger on a button as soon as they saw that patient word get dropped. Yeah. They, they hit a button and, and uh, markets have reacted pretty uh, strongly and seem convinced that the uh, RBA will be joining the RBNZ in, in lifting rates over the coming months. Yeah. So I think from a, an investment perspective, it's in the portfolio as it's in, um, in place as well. We do have more of a bias towards Australia because some of those characteristics I talked about are looking more prospective than New Zealand. And some of those challenges I guess we're facing here in New Zealand that were not fairly open, uh, we've got very tight conditions and the, the data is starting to roll a bit, little bit in terms of confidence, business confidence, consumer confidence. House prices aren't going up anymore. And so some of those influences are clearly at the front of cost of living. And that's a large, I guess, problem for many people that's going to impact them through time. Um, so we see short-term a, a better opportunity in Australia, and I'm going to go across to Australia in the next couple of weeks to um, there's a conference over there. We go to the first time in person for two or three years, so it'd be great to get over there and experience what's actually happening on the ground in Australia. Oh, that's that's awesome. And and that's probably a good place to wrap things up. We've covered so much in this podcast. Uh, apart from a uh, an international trip to uh, get over to Aussie, what are some of the things you're going to be focusing on over the coming months, Craig? Yeah, that's clearly a, a key focus. And then um, obviously we, we move into the, I guess, the reporting season. And there's going to be a lot of company announcements that come up sort of May, May, June is the pre-announcements by companies that might be finding things a little bit troubling. Uh, confession season, we call it. And so we're going to get a bit of a bit more of a guide, I guess, in terms of how the, the listed corporate market in both here in New Zealand and Australia are, are traveling at the moment. And, and some of those influences we talked about throughout the conversation, I think are going to come through and, and we'll find out, the, I guess, the response by the companies that can mitigate it to some extent and the ones that can't. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting time. And, and I look at uh, the period of March where the, all this uncertainty was around and equity markets actually managed to uh, perform reasonably well. So hopefully one of the things which investors uh, take out of listening to a, a podcast like this is that um, your markets are forward-looking. There's quite a bit of uncertainty around at the moment, but there's actually some things that are going quite well and, and plenty of things for us to focus on. And as a final comment, I'd really encourage listeners to uh, jump on uh, Harbour's website and, and have a look at some of these uh, fantastic reports that you make available to all investors. 
So thanks for joining me, Craig. It's just been a real pleasure to get some insights from you. My pleasure, Chris, and it's been been a great great time. So we'll look forward to doing it again some stage. Perfect. That works. Uh, that works for me, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear from you again too. Thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, or there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a future show, get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz. If you've made it through the podcast and you're still listening, here comes the fine print. ASB Portfolio Series is a discretionary investment management service provided by ASB Bank Limited. For more information, see the ASB Portfolio Series Service Disclosure Statement available from your ASB Wealth Manager. 